Well, hello there and good evening. My name is Randolph J, and you are tuned in to Mondo Rando Radio on MidtownRadio.ca. The premise of this show is a simple one. Each week we're hosting intimate and interactive conversations with familiar friends and fascinating strangers about their passions. Could be classic cars, volcanoes, the Thundercats, anything that gets them excited. Our guests will be sharing their fondness for the various subjects that help shape who they are, and occasionally they may even share their life advice and strategies for dealing with everything else. Of course, any opinions and experiences shared will be unique to each guest and should not be taken as official advice to any particular listener. It's a relatively new show, and your feedback is more than welcome. You can find us on Facebook under Mondo Rando, on Instagram at Mondo Rando Radio, and you can email us anytime at Radio at gmail.com. Our special guest today is Charity Gilmore of Pound Dog Rescue, here to share her love of dogs. Without further ado, here is Charity Gilmore. Charity Gilmore, thank you so much for spending some time with us. You are welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. Okay, tell us what got you into dogs. <sighs> oh, Lord, that's a long, that's a long, long road back. Um, we, we have 60 minutes. <laughs> we, we have, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, basically, you know, to meet me now, you probably wouldn't suspect this, but I was a pretty introverted child and um, a little socially awkward. And um, I just found animals to be a lot easier to connect with than I did with people when I was mm-hmm. younger. Um, and dogs were always just a big part of my extended family's life. And um, yeah, I guess I just fell in love with them from a really early age. I think the first, the first big love of my life would be Eric, who was my, my grandmother's Doberman pincher. Mm-hmm. Um, I was two, he was two and a half. And um Apparently, we were inseparable. She has an old reel-to-reel tape recorder of me singing to Eric. and <laughs> Yeah, but all started, I guess, pretty much close to out of the womb. Oh, very nice. So, yeah. uh, so let me just paint a picture here. So Eric and your grandmother are living. Is it a rural place, or is she in an apartment in the city? Where is she at? Um, well, at the time, uh, she was living in Niagara Falls. Okay. Um, I was born in Niagara-on-the-Lake, um, grew up in the Niagara region, um, so my family is spread out through Niagara on the Lake, Niagara Falls and St. Catharines. And at the time she was living in the city in Niagara Falls. Okay. But you, but there's, so, so there's a bit of a mix of rural and yes. urban. Okay. So that's Eric. Yeah. And that would have been when you were two. So I won't ask yeah. you what year that was in, but nevertheless. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So you're a child then. And then as you grow up, more dogs are coming into your life. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, my extended family always had dogs. I didn't personally have my own dogs within my immediate family. Um, we grew up in an apartment building and, um, you know, it's just, it wasn't the environment I think my mom felt was best to have a dog. And I didn't agree, disagree with her at that time. Well, I mean, I disagreed with her at that time in retrospect, looking back, looking back, she was right. She was right. Um, but so I would always find ways to have dogs in my life. Um, when I would go to school, for example, I remember there was a red chow chow, um, I think I was in grade seven. I used to stop and give him treats on the way home because he was tied up in his backyard and it was unfenced. And so I bonded with that guy. Um, I used to earn money from my other sets of grandparents on my father's side. 
And uh, I'd hop on my, you know, banana seat bike and go to home hardware and buy bags of dog biscuits with the money I earned. And then I'd ride my bike out to the Humane Society and I'd walk along the cages and give all the dogs bones. And oh, so wow. I found some way to always have them in my life, even if I couldn't have my own. So, mm-hmm. Well, and you're having them in such a way that you you early on, I guess, saw the ephemeral nature of being a dog in the sense that it's very it's not an easy road for dogs no, you're seeing a lot of different dogs and in the humane society as a child that could be pretty it can be pretty intense yeah yeah and i remember there were, i was also a very sensitive child so i remember uh many tears especially when i would go back you know and one day one of the dogs wasn't there so um yeah, I think that definitely, in retrospect, that definitely was the beginning of why I got into dog rescue. Very good. Okay, so you finished school, and then uh, where did you go, and where did, and how did the dogs find you? Well, actually, I didn't finish school. So, um, oh, no, 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 you, you didn't, maybe you didn't graduate, but you yeah. finished school. <laughs> yes, I, you're right, I did, I finished school. Um, I moved out on my own when I was 17, Um and I waited until I was about 20 before I got my first of my very own dogs. Oh, wow. Um, so he was he was a handful. His name was Benny. He was a Malamute uh, Chow Chow Cross. And he was That's a gorgeous a- dog, but a lot of dog for somebody as their first dog. Well, a Malamute isn't, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't a Malamute sort of a, a large husky? Yeah, Isn't very that more so, or yeah. less. Okay, yeah, it's like the sled, the sled, the yeah. sled dog, basically. It was the sled dog, and uh, of the Spitz family, and then the Chow Chow was uh, also a member of the Spitz family, and really, honestly, he was a gorgeous dog, but a terrible breed mix. <laughs> he was so challenging, um, and I was again, you know, twenty. 20 turning 21 when I got him. Um, so he's actually the dog that really got me on the path of really understanding dogs a little bit more, like how they think, what works with them, um, all kinds of different training approaches and techniques. And it was because I was just trying to find my way with Benny mm-hmm. uh, that uh, that spark got ignited. So, right. and, how, and how did Benny come to you? How, where did he come from? So he was um, a puppy from uh, one of my family members, had an accidental litter. So, yes, there was a Malamute in the neighborhood, and he broke down the privacy fence in my family member's backyard and got to her unspayed female chow, and the rest is history. So, yeah. Okay, so you so you're dealing with Benny, and because uh, you say he was a lot of dog, I imagine <laughs> was it yeah. the were you. Because they need a lot of space to run around, I imagine. So were you in a, more of a confined like, area was too small for him or just not enough time to spend with him? Or Well, he wasn't. He actually wasn't an overly energetic dog, you know, like not like a typical husky, which mm-hmm. was nice. I think the chow chow really kind of tampered down that energy level a little bit. Um, and I lived in, you know, you can imagine I had moved out when I was 17. So I had like a bare bones, basic apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up bouncing around to a few different uh, apartments with friends and roommates and that, but all of those moves and all of those tough times, you know, Benny was with me through all of it. Um, You know, I was not making a huge income. um, So really everything that I had to do with him was 
Um, I had to become very, very resourceful. I spent hours at libraries trying to read books. You know, we didn't have the internet the same way we have now. And Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, he, he was challenging um, in the sense that he was an incredibly independent dog, which is to be expected with those breed mixes. Um, Very distrusting of people. Um, Yeah, he was just, he wasn't, you know, I had this vision in my head of he was going to grow up as a puppy, like with me as like a golden retriever type of personality. Yeah. You know, and you, was, you'd ride around in a van solving mysteries. Yeah. And, yeah. This, this did not right happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, he was, he was so challenging to understand. Like he was just so different than every dog that I'd ever had in my life. And so, you know, that's when it really hit me that dogs are like people in the sense that they're no two are the same. Mm-hmm. And I had to learn Benny, you know, and I had to do it on the cheap and I had to put a lot of, you know, leg work and brain power into it. Um, but he became an amazing dog. We hiked, I can't even tell you how many trails together, um, went through a lot of moves and to the buying of my own first home. Yeah. He was, uh, he was the one that really started a lot of, a lot of where I am now. I believe it. I absolutely believe it. And so now Benny is no longer with us. No, no, no. And how, and how long has he been gone? He's been gone. Oh my God. I hate to say this. He has been gone. About 15 years at this point. But you still remember him clear as day, obviously. hundred percent. Yeah. Everything about him. Yeah. And how much, how much space did you leave between the time Benny left you and the time, you got more, more canine friends. I didn't. So, <laughs> so as Benny was aging, um, and you know, I was so at that point, I think he was around. I want to say he was around nine years old um, when I adopted my second dog, who mm-hmm. was a golden retriever. Um, Again, I go and find a dog that's in like the worst shape you know, mm-hmm. possible. And I'm like, oh, I can bring this dog home. Um, and again, she taught me even more than Benny did in different ways. She had she had spent her first five years living in the basement of a home. So she really every issue you can imagine, you know, aggression with people, with other dogs, afraid to go on walks you know, terrified she's going to lose her food. So she guards everything like mm-hmm. you name it. And Haley had it all. Um, and I remember sitting and I had started taking some dog training courses and that at that point, because I just wanted to know more. Like I wanted mm-hmm. to do better than what I had done with Benny. Mm-hmm. Well, and you don't want to make, you don't want to make things worse. No, no. You and want- I definitely, I definitely don't want to repeat, you know, some stupid mistakes and choices I made with Benny early on because I didn't know any better. Um, and then I remember sitting down with her at one point thinking, oh, my God, I'm so in over my head with this dog. Like, what am I going to do? And I had this. She had just bitten my partner at the time. And I was like, oh, my God, like, what am I doing here? Um, she and and Benny had just gotten into a fight a couple of days before that. And I remember sitting. It was nighttime and I was sitting on the back porch of my old house. And I had my arm around her. And I remember looking at her going, like, you got to help me out here because I don't know what I'm going to do with you if we don't make this work, you know? And, and of course I'm a suck. So I'm crying and she's just looking at me like, I don't know, there's lobsters coming out of my ears or something. (laughs) I swear to God though, it was like the next day, something in her changed. And, and then she ended up being 
an incredible obedience dog. She was the dog that like everybody loved Haley. Um, this, This remarkable thing just happened with her where she became a completely different dog. And, uh, and then after she was aging, she was about 11. Benny had passed away at this point. Um, I got my first golden retriever puppy and brought her home. Oh, so, very nice. So I've always had at least one dog and, you know, two dogs to three dogs at some point. In my so life. It's, it's like chain smoking, but with a more positive <laughs> <laughs> yes. outcome. Yep, yep. You can put it that way. <laughs> okay, so what's the largest number of personal dogs you've had at any one given time? Five. Five. Yeah. I'm not familiar I'm with the bylaws. Much. I don't know what the bylaws are where you live. But <laughs> it five, was at one point in time. Yes, I, I had dogs. Yeah. Five seems like a lot of dogs. It really wasn't that bad. I, as I learned more about how to train them and how they think and pack dynamics in that, it's actually, it wasn't really that difficult at all. Well, when you think about pack dynamics, I always think of, and I don't know, I'm because when you talk to people about certain topics, mm-hmm. any anyone who's listening to this right now who has a dog, yeah, almost invariably is going to feel strongly about a particular approach to dogs. <laughs> and I, yeah. I have no answers. I just all I can say is that everyone has to kind of figure it out on their own, yeah. and hopefully do what is ultimately best for the animal. Because you're the one, you're the grown up, you're the adult, you're the one that's got to figure it out. Yeah. Uh, so I just want to ask about the different folks. Like the 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 when I think of pack dynamics, I always think of Caesar Milan. And the and I remember when I was a kid, I go back as far as Barbara Woodhouse. Mm-hmm. I remember Barbara Woodhouse. No bad dogs. No bad dogs. No. Okay, so yeah. how has the, I guess my question really is, what are your thoughts on the early training that you were getting? Because as you say, you were at the library reading as many books as you could. And I'm assuming there's one or two by Barbara Woodhouse in that yeah. stack. Uh, and then from there, uh, how have things progressed? Because Caesar Milan's approach seems to me to be very different from Barbara Woodhouse. Not that I've read either of their books, but just the vibe that I've gotten from the articles I've picked up here and there. Well, oh, that's such a heated topic. (laughs) It it really is. And we have to to say that we're we're not experts. Neither of us know everything. For sure. And it it is, I do recognize that it's a very polarizing topic amongst a lot of communities and people in the community. And um, I will say, you know, I started off... um, in a more dominance based training style when I was in my early twenties with Benny, Mm. um, you know, I joined the St. Catherine's kennel club at the time and their training methods were very Keeler based or some people say Kohler based. And and what does that mean? He, he was a, a trainer. Um, I can't remember what decade he came out, but it's a very dominance, you know, you must, um, really dominate your animal. I don't even know how else to say it. You're like, it's about dominating the dog into submission. Okay. Is and, that, but um, in the dog's language kind of thing, like a Caesar no, Milan approach or no, is it pre? You, so know, it, you know, using things like prong collars and stuff like that. Oh, and um, newspapers you know, and, and they worse. would like lift yeah. dogs up and string, they'd call stringing them up. So you'd lift them up off the ground with their leash. And, you know, oh, so it's very, very aggressive. It's very aggressive. And on, and that is when I, when I say that I needed to learn more and better. Um, right. I remember Benny was six months old at the time. And I, and again, he's a very independent, you know, strong willed dog. And I and went big, to, and he's a big dog. 
he is big at six months. He was a big boy. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Very powerful guy. Um, and I remember going to the, the kennel club and we were doing a training session and we had to do um, something where he was on a prong collar. And what, what, for those who don't know, what is a prong collar? That have the little, you know, prongs or teeth that kind of dig into the words, the neck and they pinch. So when you pull, um, when you pull it, it brings prongs into the neck. Okay. It, it I think I know what you mean. a little pinch, uncomfortable sensation to the dog, depending exactly how you do it. And there's a lot of controversy about that tool, but I, I did use it back then because I didn't know any better. Right. Um, for Benny. And, um, we had an exercise where we had to, Benny was barking at another dog on leash and he was on this prong collar and we had to string him up off the floor with this prong collar. And I just saw the look in his eyes change. And it's like, you know, when you're looking at a dog or any person, there's that little spark, you see that little life in their eyes. Um, and I remember looking at Benny when that happened and I saw the spark just go, it just went away. And he checked out and I felt so horrible for what I had just done um, that I took the prong collar off and we left class and never went back again. And I was like, I've got to find a better way to do this because if I have to make an animal feel the way I just made him feel, Mm -hmm. something's very wrong. Right. So I went through Barbara Woodhouse. I went through, um, oh my God, I can't even tell you the number of trainers, monks of new skeet. Um, what was that word you said? Monks of where? The Monks of New Skeet. So that was another um, very popular training book. It's still popular to this day, actually. Um, just their style and method of training dogs. And I, okay. I literally have explored and um, practiced in pretty much every method that is out there, used pretty much all the tools early on. Um, and I've just gotten to this place where you know, the whole pack mentality, what I find really interesting is the the gentleman who, you know, I don't know if marketed or, you know, put forward the theory of pack mentality for dogs, um, did that and quite a few decades ago and has actually retracted it and said, I was wrong. You know, this isn't, this isn't exactly how domesticated dogs behave. And I made mistakes with this, but yet we we're holding on to this whole pack mentality way of thinking when it comes to dogs. I'm not exactly sure why that is, but it's happened. Well, habit it's habit, you know, that's people and people don't necessarily want to change despite new information, get used to something. And I think, I think that there is, I don't there's a lot of reasons why people hold on to that, but I, I also think that in some cases it's hard to recognize the incredibly complex and capable beings that dogs are, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and that takes a lot of time and that takes a lot of work to understand that. And some people don't have or want to put in the time or the work to understand that. So, yeah, And they're not going to sit, the dog doesn't just yeah. go back into his box or sit on the yeah. shelf for the eight hours you're at work. Yeah. And you come back and pick up where you left off the dog. The dog is being a dog 24 hours yeah. a day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think sometimes we mistake, you know, if a dog is compliant with what we've asked, that we mistake that for good training. And that, and to me, it's not the same things. So, right. yeah. So I think, you know, there is this, there's a lot of drama in the dog training world right now about, you know, conflicting methodologies and, practices and tools and 
I see a shift where generally speaking, a lot of people just want to find a way to do things that are more relationship centered with their dog. Mm-hmm. You know, their, their dog is more of a team member versus an animal that they need to dominate. You notice it with children as well, the raising of children, the raising of dogs or the training of dogs. People get very almost zealous and to the re- point of religion about how yes. they feel dogs should be kept yeah. and raised. And we're not here to we're to poo-poo anybody. You know, you you yep. have a great deal of experience with dogs. I think we can agree that we're all looking out for what's in the best interest of the dog. We just have different ways of approaching it. Yeah. I would hope. I would hope I that's would say, the case. I would say generally speaking, that is true. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there is also the the you know, the dogs for money, dogs for profit world which I know that I'm sure you're a bit passionate about, and so am I in the sense that mm-hmm. uh, a lot of dogs are made to be sold and just yes. to be. But, and I'm, I'm sure that's how you end up with a lot of the dogs you end up with at Pound Dog Rescue. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. All right. So let, let's talk a little bit about uh, when you're dealing with um, – when you're dealing with dogs who have come from other sources, so meaning the dogs have been through a number of sets of hands, because because you've raised dogs that have not, they've not come fresh out of a litter. They've you know gone through a lot of different hands, a lot of different uh, mistakes have been made. How do you mm-hmm. get started with with a dog like that? Well, to be honest with you, I think. I think there is this big misconception about rescue dogs in that um, I still see it quite frequently that, you know, they're damaged goods, you know, they're going to be harder to train, they're less predictable, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, essentially, you know, that perspective that getting a dog from a breeder from fresh puppyhood is going to be a guarantee that you're going to have a more well-rounded dog. And, and you know, I'm certainly... I just will say right off the top, I don't have an issue with ethical breeders at all. You know, I, I, I sometimes get flack for that in the rescue community, but I really don't have a problem with ethical breeders. I think that the key word is ethical and there's um, some real uh, expectations and, you know, best practices that go along with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, have I truly can tell you that I have experienced both in my personal life and in dogs that I've worked with. And a lot of the rescue dogs are absolutely fantastic. They've Mm -hmm. just really been let down by people Mm -hmm. so far, and they just need somebody to show them what to do. You know, Mm -hmm. how do you live in this world as a, as a positive, you know, valued family member, because that's not what you've experienced so far. My first thing always, and I personally, um, like in our rescue, we get the whole gamut of dogs and, you know, a lot of them are completely lovely and can be adopted out to a family in no prof- no time at all. Um, I personally take on the more complicated cases most mm. of the time because I have the experience and the skill set to work with them. Um, and the passion for it. And the passion for it because it's not easy. No, it's, it's definitely not easy. not easy work for people. Um, I, my biggest piece of the puzzle that I have to establish and maintain right out of the gate with them is to create an environment that they trust me in. Mm -hmm. So 
if I if I am betraying that dog's trust to at this point, when they've come to me, they've already been abandoned at least once or gotten the short end of the stick or, you know, they've come out of a puppy mill and don't know life outside of a cage or a barn. Like, um, If I ruin that trust that I establish with them, then we're going nowhere. Like mm-hmm. we're just because they don't trust people enough as it is. If I can't get them to trust me and maintain that. That's it. Like there's, there's no hope of them being their best. And so what that looks like is a little bit different for each dog, because again, they're not all the same. And you can't um, read their minds as much as we think we can. No, you can't read their minds. No, you can get really good at, at reading the output of their behaviors and what you have done and understanding what that means, but yeah, you can, you can, in their head, knowing yeah. what they're thinking, right? <laughs> you, you can recognize symptoms yep. that, that, uh, you know, it's kind of the, uh, what's that old doctor expression? Thinks uh, horses, not zebras. Mm-hmm. If you hear hoofbeats behind you, it's probably horses, not zebras, unless it's- you're, on the savannah in Africa, then it's probably yeah. zebras and not horses. So you kind of, when you see these symptoms, you say, okay, the odds are this is being caused by this, or this is a result of this. And so you can kind of, and experience is the only thing that will teach you that. Yeah, exactly. And that's a very, it's a very hard thing to teach people, but that's the, that has to be the foundation of everything I do with the dogs that I work with is they have to trust me. And, and until they can trust me, then learning isn't really possible for them. Mm-hmm. We should back up a little bit, I suppose, and explain what exactly it is that you do. So for Pound Dog Rescue? Yeah. Okay, so I joined Pound Dog Rescue just over 10 years ago. Um, a friend of mine had started it. Uh, friends of mine, I should say, had started it. Um, I started off just volunteering and, you know, fundraising events and things like that. Um, I foster currently i'm a foster family for them i'm also a foster mentor so i guide other foster families and working with their dogs um i'm adoption coordinator i geez i do everything (laughs) pretty much everything but i my biggest role truly is as a foster family and a foster mentor for other foster families well i was about to say because the 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 lion's share of your work, at least, or your emotional energy has to be spent in the fostering of dogs. And how many do you have currently in your home? Fosters? I have three fosters. One who's bunking with me for the night, but I have three of my own foster dogs right now. Okay. Oh, so, and you also have some permanent long-time do. dogs. Okay. So so tell me about your long-time dogs first. I want to know about them. Well, I have... Is that the term? Um, Not long-time dogs, but permanent. I don't know what I, you would call them. Your, my favorite dogs? Your um, team. <laughs> so my little pack, and I say that word, you know, with the understanding of what we just discussed in yes. terms of packs, <laughs> um, they consist of everything from a 2.9-pound chihuahua to mm-hmm. a 120-pound mastiff. So, um, and one of my dogs, Noodle, in there is also, uh, he's a therapy dog, so he's a little Pomeranian chihuahua poodle. Oh, nice. Um, all of them are rescues, so all of every single one of them, and uh, yeah, they they actually do half the work. Sorry, I was just looking at one of the foster dogs here. Um, they do half the work, quite frankly. Like they help the foster dogs feel at ease. They speak dog, you yeah. know, like in a way that I can't. No matter how much we try as humans to mimic dog mm-hmm. language, we just can't. You know, well, as much as you as a person. 
want yeah. to feel that you are in communication with an animal and you can say, you know, you're safe here, you're going to be happy here, and this is your new home and you everything is going to be wonderful. They don't have a clue until they see we learn by example. So when you see other dogs with you behaving a certain way, that I think is more substantial to the dog's development as far 100%. as how am I supposed to behave? Just look yep. at how everyone else behaves. And that's because that's what people yeah. do. That's exactly what people do. 100%. And, you know, a lot of the dogs that I take in have not had good experiences with people. So mm -hmm. there's a bigger uh, gap to bridge there with us, you know, because they've already got their their um, experiences. And yes, when they see my dogs with me, um, they kind of figure that's how they figure out I'm okay. Like, mm -hmm. and they see, they watch everything I do from the second they walk in the door. Like of they course. are assessing me 24 <laughs> seven. And so the way I treat my own dogs tells them how, what they can expect, you know, in terms of how I'm going to treat them. So, mm -hmm. you know, my dogs really do have the work in helping them feel settled and to open up that possibility to trust me. And an important thing you said is they learn what to expect and a lot of stress for people at least, and I can only guess it's the same for dogs, is the is not knowing what to expect. If you know something terrible is going to happen, that's better than thinking something terrible might happen. Yeah. Because it just it, you're, you know what to expect, and it's an incredibly calming notion. Yeah. To, to people, especially if you've been in a stressful situation, as I'm sure a lot of these dogs have been. Yeah. Well, and, and like I tell people, it's, it's like, if I were to picture myself getting kidnapped off the street, plopped down in a different country with a whole um, society that I am not familiar with and I don't speak their language. And um, like, I, I imagine that's how it feels for so many dogs when they first find themselves in rescue, you know, whether they end up in a pound or a humane society or they end up in a, a new home. It's like this period of, Oh my God, my world's just gone upside down. Mm -hmm. Even if the pre the world they're used to was anything but positive, it was at least familiar. Right. Uh, and you know what to expect, as we say, you yeah, know what they, to expect. They, they knew what was going to happen and all that stuff. Right. So now you pick them up, you put them in a whole different world, so to speak. And um, if I were in that position, if I found somebody that looked like me, talked like me, I would of course gravitate towards that person to be like, Oh my God, what, what's going on here. Right. Mm -hmm. And you can, I swear you can see that conversation happening with the dogs sometimes. I believe it. I believe where it. Where they're just like, okay, there's another one of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's interesting because we think of being transplanted. So for example, if you as a person were living yeah. in New York and were suddenly transported to Argentina you mm -hmm. can, oh, that's going to be a massive culture shock. Uh, yeah. And the language you would think would be the biggest obstacle to overcome. And once you kind of figure out the language, you're fine. But with dogs, because smell and scent is so crucial to everything, you yeah. could go from New York to Albany and the smells would be radically different. Totally different. A tree to us, a yeah. tree looks like a tree looks like a tree to a dog it's a, it's a, it's Mars. It's a, yeah. <laughs> you could be moving. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, it's like, it, you know, when we talk about, like, you can see what you're talking about in very simple examples. Like you teach your dog to sit, lay down at home. Mm -hmm. They do it a hundred percent at home. 
no problem whatsoever, right? They're comfortable. They, that environment's predictable. They know it. The second you change the environment, it's like a whole different thing you're teaching them mm-hmm. because now there's, like you said, different smells, different sounds, different sights, and all of that because they don't have the ability to think rationally and through things the way that we do. They live so much in the moment mm-hmm. that it's like, oh my God, this is all new now. <laughs> yeah, well, and, so, and I think, I think they have, I think we do them kind of a disservice because their understanding is just, it's so different from ours. Yeah. So what we would think of being a rational thought for a dog, I'm sure it's perfectly rational to eat another dog's poo. <laughs> There's a reason for, <laughs> they have a perfectly good reason to do it. It yeah. just doesn't seem to us as if they do. Yeah, but they don't they don't have that ability to like talk themselves through, okay, this is, you know, this is what's going to happen and yeah, okay, this, so this is an airport. Like it's just all different new things for them. You know, mm-hmm. they just have different they think in a very complex way just differently than we do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's well, uh, there's, there's a lot we can learn from them in the sense that it seems to us and as again, we we're not you know, scientists, but instinctively you look at a dog and you think this dog is living in the moment right now. This is, and as much baggage as they may have in their past that may have influenced their behavior and why they do things the way they do. They're not living in the past. They're not Mm -hmm. staying awake at night thinking about what happened three days ago. That's programmed in the program is set and they're just continuing on along that program, which is running. Whereas we, as people we're constantly reviewing past mistakes, past behaviors, and and mm-hmm. trying to alter it or trying to uh, uh, rationalize it. This is why we rationalize yeah. and dogs don't. They don't have to. <laughs> yeah. They just continue on. And so, yeah, there's a lot There's a lot of kind of philosophical joy to be found in the way a dog operates. Yes, 100%. Because you've been with Pound Dog for how many years now? Uh, just over 10 years. But I have years. been... I've been working in uh, rescue for about 25 years altogether in different capacities. Yeah. And the fact that, and the fact that you are still smiling and still seem so cheerful and ready to get at it each and every day says it, it it says two things to me. First, it says there is a deeply rewarding aspect to what you're doing because the financial compensation can't possibly make up for the amount of emotional toil that it can take, you know, to, to, to deal with all that you have to deal with. So the fact that you're still doing it and still as cheerful about doing it says it's an incredibly rewarding. um, Yeah. Well, it is a labor of love because there is no financial compensation, right? This is, there is no, you know, there's, there's some conversations that I think happen, you know, in society about, you know, rescues being money-making, um, experiences or money-making businesses. And I will say that unfortunately, you know, like any other business, there are some unethical ones and there's a lot though, um, more so that truly there, there's no making money off of this. You know, the, the amount of money we put into our dogs, when you do rescue, right. Um, in my humble opinion, um, you know, the money all goes back into the dogs. So nobody's walking away with a paycheck. You know, yep. many times you're like struggling to get out of the red, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's definitely not something you get into thinking you're going to make a job out of this. That's going to no. pay bills. Well, that's um, just it. You couldn't, you, you couldn't make it. 
Well, and you, and you couldn't man, you couldn't manage to do it for twenty years if that was no. your goal. You couldn't possibly do it. No, you uh, have to love what you're doing for sure. You absolutely, have to love what you're doing. And do you hear uh, from a lot of the folks that you you rehome the dogs with? Do you find you hear? Do you hear back from them? Yeah, I mean, we. I find you know, I personally develop really good relationships with a lot of the adoption, the adopter families. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of them, you know, send me updates periodically throughout the years. Um, you know, so and so accomplished this today. I can't believe we got here. You know, uh, that there's a lot of that that happens. Um, and I think as a rescue, generally speaking, we've been very fortunate that we've built kind of like a family, like we call it the pound dog family. You know, a lot of our adopters return to us over and over again, um, because of the experience and the, and the ethics and the integrity that we, you know, apply to our practices. Um, and so we do have, you know, kind of this little community of pound dog adopters who are tremendous supporters. And honestly, we couldn't do this without them because there is no, you know, I don't know if people are aware, but there's no sponsorship that happens. There's no uh, government funding that takes place. Like everything we do, we can do because we fundraise and we have support from our communities. And mm-hmm. so we're very lucky to have that. And yeah, we have a lot of really like tremendously successful adoptions. Um, we've just passed the, we're closing in on 1100 dogs in um, just over 10 years. You know, that might not seem like a big number to a lot of people because there are some rescues that pump out, you know, that number in a year, but we have always been very, very focused on, the quality of the work that we're doing versus the volume of the work that we're doing mm-hmm. and making sure that we're really setting the dogs and the families up successfully. So, you know, I can think of, we have a number of our, our former foster dogs that have gone on to be therapy dogs with St. John's ambulance. For That's example. terrific. That's terrific. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they're paying back to the community in a different way. And, um, we have some that have turned out to be obedience champions. You know, one of the dogs that I foster failed with um, is actually. <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah, he's my little guy, Noodle. He uh, he is an o- obedience champ. He is a therapy dog. Um, there's just so many stories. Our success rate is incredibly high. You know, mm-hmm. I can think in the almost 1,100 dogs, I can think um, of maybe two hands I can count the dogs that have not successfully remained with their families and it was never from a fault of the dog so that success rate is very very high well Um, yeah if you're focused on the quality and you're focused on the actual relationship between the dog and the family you're if that's where your focus is, you're bound to have a higher success rate because if your focus is just get the dog out the door, well, then mission accomplished. Just let them out and off they go. But, and hope they don't come back. Yeah. And hope they don't come back. Uh, and I, I like to see that, that uh, the ethics are so important because as, as an animal lover, it's hard to see, it's hard to watch things that you personally find unethical taking place right out in the open. And, you yes. know, and it's very, it's very challenging. So it is nice to know that. The people that you are finding homes for, the dogs are coming back to you. And I suspect it's because of the ethics. Yes. Because 100%. if when people I think I think that many folks like myself, if we are put in a position where we are doing what we think is right, but we're dealing with people that we feel are doing it for the wrong reason, we don't go back. Hundred percent. 
And I, I wouldn't by choice work with someone that I viewed to be unethical. And so the fact that they are coming back to you, I think that is what that should be on your posters. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, It's it's a heck of an accomplishment for sure. Mm. All right. So let me me ask you about some of the, um, some of the do's and don'ts that you would suggest to anyone who's getting a dog from wherever that dog may come. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think some of the biggest pitfalls that people fall into is, um, Number one, being very honest with yourself about what your lifestyle is, about what, you know, effort and time you are going to put into the family member that you bring home. And mm-hmm. I say family member because that's how I, I view the dogs, right? They are. They are family um, members. It, you know, a, a lot of people will say things like, I want to get a really active dog because it's going to get me out walking and get me up off the couch. And I'm, you know, with all due respect, that might be true for the majority of people for a couple of weeks or maybe even a couple of months. But, um, you know, long term, mm-hmm. that's not really what your lifestyle is. Well, and the thing is, that's more of a byproduct of why you would get a dog, which I think is the first question you need to ask. Why do I want a dog? Yeah. And you ask that before you ask yourself what type of dog I'd like to get. Yep. I, 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 yeah, you have to... You have to do it for the reasons that are going to be sustainable, you know, mm-hmm. and that are honest and true for you. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we're we're experiencing, for example, right now, a massive COVID crash where, um, you know, all of us in rescue knew this was going to happen. You know, you, everybody was in lockdown during COVID and people were bored or lonely or they needed something because we couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, So you saw this incredible influx of people, you know, buying dogs from breeders or adopting dogs through rescue. Um, And, you know, you just knew, you just knew that as soon as life gets back to normal or, you know, as normal as it can be right now, um, a lot of those dogs are going to come back because Mm -hmm. people, you know, they got it for the wrong reasons, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's exactly what's happening right now. It's, it's actually one of the most challenging times in rescue I can recall. And I think pretty much every rescue out there will say the same thing. It's absolutely overwhelming mm-hmm. um, with the number of dogs that are coming back because people don't have time for them anymore. Yeah. But then the other part of it is not just the ones, the dogs that people have adopted during COVID and, uh, and are now, you know, back to a more normal life and the dog doesn't fit in this uh, picture anymore. But there was also, you know, the mass breeding operations, the puppy mill operations that ramped up, you know, I I hate to say it, but call it what it is. They ramped up production Mm -hmm. of these puppies because it was a huge money-making opportunity. You know, they dogs that would sell for $1,200 before people were selling for like five and Mm $6,000 during COVID because the demand was so high. Right. So these mass producers of puppies ramped up all this production. And, and sadly you would think at this point that they would scale it back, but it's not scaling back. So now the demand has dropped, but the production is still there. And so now we're ending up with not only the dogs that are being returned, but now all these dogs from like puppy mills that aren't selling and like whole entire litters of puppies mm-hmm. that, you know, if we don't take them right now, they're going to be disposed of, you know, by the puppy mill. And mm-hmm. so 
now you're getting it from two directions. And that's, that's what's really challenging at this point in time. But at the same time, you know, as much as we would be like, we'd love to be able to pump out higher numbers of dogs. That's just not the way that we work. Right. No. So we're still operating with the same quality, but it's taking a bigger toll on us because mm-hmm. we have more and more dogs in our program than we've had before. So, yeah. and it's, it's just heartbreaking. It really is. Cause the dogs all pay the price at the end of the day, right. Mm-hmm. Because based on the whims of people. So that's the hardest part is there's only so much you can do and you cannot fix the problem. Yeah. And, and what what is the what is being done? Do you think, as far as educating the public about how how best to approach? If you because if you want to get a dog, the first as we're saying, the do's and don'ts of what you want to do. Yeah. If you're going to get a dog, the first thing you do is you ask yourself, why am I getting a dog, and will a dog fit my lifestyle, and what dog will best fit my lifestyle and the lifestyle yeah. of my family. So then, once you've reached that point, where what is the best course of option for you? Well. I, I kind of sort of hate this phrase for the amount of times that it's been used throughout this pandemic, but you have to do your research. You know, <laughs> you have to truly, you have to truly, you know, if you're going the breeder route, make sure it's an ethical breeder, right? There's, there's so many, um, there's so much documentation out there about how to choose a breeder that's in it for the right reasons, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you, that's the, you've got to research where your dog is coming from. You know, if mm-hmm. there's big red flags. Like if you don't get to see the mom and dad, that's a huge red flag. You mm-hmm. know, you should be able to see the parents. If you can't see the location the puppies are being raised in, that's a big red flag. You know, mm-hmm. like what's their vet care look like? What testing of the parents was done? Like all kinds of things like that. And there's an abundance of information out there from, you know, the veterinary colleges, the humane societies, you name it, to help guide people to make better decisions. Um, about the family member that they're bringing home. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, we also live in this society that's used to getting things pretty instantaneously, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, they're like, I, I'm ready for a puppy right now. And they want the puppy now. You know, mm-hmm. like yeah. they want it in the next couple of weeks. And, you know, the reality is, if you are going to a really ethical breeder who's doing it for the right reasons, which is to preserve the breed or whatever it might be, um, true health and temperament, like they're really breeding for those reasons. The reality is you're going on a wait list. Like these breeders are not, they don't have puppies posted on Kijiji. You know, you call them and say, um, you know, they have 15 different breeds that they're breeding. You know, um, you have to be patient. You know, they do your research. And understand that if if somebody tells you, oh, I have puppies right now, I will guarantee you that is not the source that you want to go to. Because yeah. that's just not how really reputable good breeders work. And unfortunately, and yeah, I mean, it's, and it's so difficult to see yeah. a picture. When you want a puppy, the first thing you're going to do is look for puppies on the internet. And as soon as you find one, you fall in love I immediately. And yeah. you think, well, if I don't get that puppy, that puppy's going to go someplace bad. So I have to yeah. save that puppy yeah. If I don't get it right now. And- yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of the, um, a lot of these puppy producers do play on the heartstrings and that mm-hmm. too, you know, um, but the truth of the matter is, and it's a very harsh truth and it's a tough pill to swallow. When you buy a dog from those sources, you are doing absolutely what they want you to do, which is line their kids, right? And the more that that demand stays in place, 
the more the production is going to happen. And so, you know, you might get it, you might walk out and get a really nice puppy. It might be behaviorally fine. It might be physically, mentally, you know, structurally sound. Um, but the parents are living horrible lives, mm-hmm. horrible lives. Right. And that's the thing that we also, you know, I really challenge people to think about. You might get the really cute puppy that you want, but is it okay at the cost of what those parents are living through? Because they are not living in good situations at all. No. And if um, they're not, and if they're not outright destroyed by the mill, they end yeah. up with you and you have yeah. to deal with the parents. And then we have to deal with that. And, and I mean, I'll tell you, honestly, they're all wonderful dogs. They're mm-hmm. lovely dogs. Um, but it takes them time because, you know, they pretty much have the spirit zapped out of them in these mm-hmm. puppies. So, so, you know, be paid, do your research, really have high standards, mm-hmm. um, know that it's going to take time if you're going to do it right. And a good breeder is going to have a lot of questions for you because they want to know where this puppy is going. If somebody's, good. if they're too readily handing over a puppy, that's a concern, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so you just be patient because you'll get what you want. You just have to be patient. So patience, absolutely be patient. And you have to be able to say no. When someone presents you with a beautiful, exactly what you want right now, you have to be prepared to say no to something. And saying no to a puppy is perhaps the hardest thing a person, mm-hmm. especially a person whose child is involved. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's a very difficult decision for, if as a parent, you don't want to put yourself in that position no. because you will end up doing what your child wants. Yes. And, and like I would, if it, if it were me, I'd be keeping my children right out of that equation until, mm-hmm. you know, in that discussion until we're at the point of we've now picked out where we're going to get our puppy from. Yes. The breeder yeah. trusts us. We trust the breeder. Then you meet the breeder, you know, then you start to have conversations with the kids and that. But, you know, I and I say to people when they're like, my kids really want a dog. And it's like, it could be a really good experience for you. The number of families that bring home a puppy from these puppy mills and are absolutely heartbroken because the dog has parvo or, you know, some other like huge medical crisis that they cannot, they're not prepared to support. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not cheap. It's not cheap. Dogs. Dealing with a sick Definitely dog is not, not cheap. cheap. No, no. You get a dog with parvo and you're talking to successfully treat it. If you're lucky, mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of dollars. Right. And now your children are excited about a puppy and now potentially losing it. So yeah. really think about. It's is an that- emotional, it's an emotional roller coaster that no one wants to put their child through. hundred percent. Yeah. All right. So the good news is there are plenty of adult dogs out there looking for homes and there are plenty of reputable rescue operations yep. where you don't have to jump through all the breeders' hoops. You can jump through your hoops instead, and your hoops <laughs> are probably a little more straightforward. Yeah, I think so. I think because um, you you're not you're not dealing with potential dogs uh, from a litter that's going to be you know put out six months from now. You're talking about dogs that are currently waiting for homes. Yes, and and I would say when you go to a foster based program like ours is. Um, you have the benefit of a dog living in a home with a family mm-hmm. for a period of time where we truly get to know the dog, right? Mm-hmm. So now we know exactly the personality and the quirks of this dog and we can match it to the right family, mm-hmm. you know? And and sometimes I think we do, like, we definitely do get, you know, pushback, maybe for lack of a better word, of people not liking some of the, um, you know, requirements we have for certain dogs Mm -hmm. but it's always with the intention of 
having the ideal match for that dog so it's successful. And as, and if you are as a rescue operator, if you can say to the person who has a problem with some of your criteria, you say, listen, if this was already your dog, wouldn't mm-hmm. you want me to be advocating for its interest? Yeah. As opposed to adopting, if I'm adopting your dog to someone else, would you not like me to make sure that the dog is being fit with the proper person? If it's not you, if it's someone else. And when people kind of get objective about it, I think they can understand. And if people yeah. are looking at it objectively, it's very difficult to find fault in the way you're operating. Yeah, I, I think so. I, we, we definitely get far more positive feedback than the odd situation where it's just, it just hasn't turned out the way people hope. So Right. What are the what are the pitfalls that, despite reading all the books and despite doing your homework, people continue to fall into when they first bring the dog home? Um, well, I think so. There's a there's a part of you know our the adopter pool or the the family pool that's bringing dogs home, which almost thinks that the dogs are going to be plug and play. You know, you bring them (laughs) and it's just going to be the perfect dog and ready to go. Right. And, you know, I, you can't underestimate the effort it takes to put into socializing and training your dog. So you have that ideally ideal family member you wanted, right? Like it's not going to happen if you do not put the work in. Mm -hmm. Period. Right. So, you know, there's, I think a lot of people underestimate the time commitment that's required to create that adult dog or integrate this dog into your life. I think people underestimate the cost that's often required with that because, um, you know, you want to hopefully want to feed them a really good diet so that medically you can keep them in a good state, um, invest in training classes and experiences, um, it, it takes money and it takes time. And I think people underestimate what that actually, those two things look like. And I think the biggest issue I see is a complete um, misunderstanding about what socialization means for dogs, right? Uh, we all want this dog that we can take anywhere, can go anywhere with it. You know, it meets all these people, it meets all these dogs and it, you know, it just seamlessly integrates into our life that way. But that doesn't happen by accident most of the time. Yeah. And, And, you know, to have a really well socialized dog means being really aware of the experiences you're you're providing them to help them build that confidence and that stability in the world. You know, Mm -hmm. one of the things people love to do is take a young puppy and drop it off in the middle of a dog park. And, you know, we all stand there talking and the dogs are all running around and that's not usually good socialization. No, it's it's I've seen I've been it's like the Lord of the Flies. It's it's a a horrific private yeah, yeah. Right. there are certain there are certain limitations yeah. that dogs yeah. and people have we're not all nba superstars neither should no. all dogs be uh rin tin tin or lassie no and and you know even you're you're 100 right you know there are some dogs that are always going to be more reserved and introverted that's how they've been bred for generations or maybe that's just how that particular one came out mm-hmm. you know um, because there are, even within breeds, there's still a spectrum of behaviors and personalities, even within a particular breed, right? Of course, so, that's how we started the conversation. Exactly right. Like I have, I swear to God, I would never have a Chihuahua. It was like the top 10 list of breeds I never wanted to have. Um, and I fostered my first Chihuahua uh, like 10, 11 years ago. And I was like, wow, these are actually great little dogs. 
if you do like train them and stuff like that, right? So, you know, you have, there's this typical vision of chihuahuas being snappy little, yappy little buggers, you know, mm, yeah. people. But there's some that are absolutely amazing, lovely dogs. And so mm. there is, even within a breed, the big spectrum of what you could possibly get. And you just have to, you know, have your, like you said, realistic expectations of the dog that's right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Not not this idealized, romanticized version, but what is the dog that's right in front of you? And once you and get then, it, you may be dealing with a dog that is not exactly yeah. what you expected. And how flexible are you going to be? Because the dog is always working at the maximum level of its own flexibility. So yeah. you're the one that's going to have to bend if yeah. you want changes to occur. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we should, I think we should mention a little bit about just how wonderful dogs are uh, yeah. for comfort. They are so, if, if you are feeling blue, if you are feeling down, to know that your dog still thinks the world of you. Yeah. Everyone else thinks you're ugly and broke and stupid. Your dog doesn't see ugly, doesn't see broke, doesn't see stupid. Yep. It just sees you. Yeah. And it's going to love you. Yeah, take you take care of that dog, and even sadly, if you don't, that dog is still likely going to care about you and love you and want to make you happy. A hundred percent, unless he's a basset hound. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we just have a couple of seconds left here. So, Charity, thanks again. I really appreciate you taking a little bit of time to uh, chat with us today. I could talk about this for days. So, well, that's the point, right? (laughs) So, so Charity Gilmore is with us, and Charity is with Pound Dog Rescue. And if you'd like to learn more about Pound Dog Rescue, how do people get involved? Either as a donor, because I'm sure money is always welcome, but also as uh, I'm sure your foster program, there are some hoops to jump through. Theoretically, and you know, yeah. probably literally as as well, yeah. depending on what kind, depending <laughs> on what kind of training you're doing. No, but I'm sure there there are different criteria need to be met for uh, people who might want to foster dog. But what's the website, and how do people learn more? It's www.pounddog p o u n d d o g dot c a. Excellent. Um, I, I would say that's the best place to start, and everything you want to know about us is there. Um, and I would say from the fostering perspective, you know, my experience should not be a good indicator for most people, because like I said before, I take the complicated cases mm-hmm. um, and, you know, generally these are just lovely dogs that are easy to live in a family home. And, um, the fostering that most of our team does is not nearly as intensive as the fostering that I right. do. So. Of course. Yeah. And you get to know the dogs, you get to, you you find the dog that fits your lifestyle and you fit yep. theirs as well. Yep. Uh, because there are certain, there are certain behaviors that I think it's important people realize if you've never had a dog before or a pet, there are certain behaviors that are innate and forever and will not change. They yes. will, they will never, they will never uh, make you dinner. Ever. <laughs> I wish I've been for 20 years and nobody's done it. They haven't done it yet. So you're right about um, So for now, I just want to thank Charity Gilmore of uh, Pound Dog Rescue and just general all around great human dog lover. Uh, I really appreciate you sharing your passion for dogs today. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. 
And that will just about do it for this week's installment of Mondo Rando Radio on MidtownRadio.ca. My name has been Randolph J. Thank you for joining us. My special thanks also to Charity Gilmore of Pound Dog Rescue, whose experience and opinions are unique and entirely her own. If you'd like to learn more about how to responsibly add a dog to your family, contact PoundDog.ca. And if you'd like me to pass a message along to them, I'd be happy to do so. You can always reach me at MondoRandoRadio at gmail.com. Com, on Facebook at Mondo Rando and on Instagram at Mondo Rando Radio. And not to be too sentimental, I'd like to dedicate this week's program to my own late great Basset Hound, Happy Leroy, who left his own indelible impression on the hearts and minds of all who knew him. Enjoy the rest of your evening and we'll catch you again next week. Bye bye for now. <laughs>